I would invite you to turn in the book of Job, <coughs> excuse me, in the book of Job to chapter 19. We are, we are breaking just a bit from our series on the Psalms. We've been in the Psalms for uh, the better part of a year, almost a year. Uh, we have a couple of months to go before it's been a whole year that we've been in the Psalter for 2022 and 2023, talking about the songs of Zion. Uh, this morning, I'm going to uh, pause that for just, for just one Sunday to, uh, to preach about resurrection. Uh, and the name of this sermon is The Long Ark of Resurrection. I'll explain that more as we go. But we'll begin here with Job 19. This will be one of the texts that we look at. Indeed, there will be several. And so if you'd like to follow along with those, you can keep your Bible open on your lap or for so many of you, I know, keep your Bible turned on as the case may be. Beginning in verse 25. Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. After my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. This is the word of the Lord. And again we say, thanks be to God. It's no secret to many of you that, the, that our world, um, present and past and no doubt future, um, there are plenty of what we might call options of religion and designs of religion. And I would submit to you that what sets Christianity apart, uh, there are any number of things we could talk about, but you probably know the one I want to talk about this morning, which is resurrection. It is one of the unique aspects of Christianity that we believe we are saved, given salvation, and kept, and, and as it were, connected to God by way of a resurrected God-man, our Redeemer and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's begin there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. The Apostle Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Feel sorry for us if all of our hope is just in this life. And I don't have the next verse, but you can kind of see it blurred out a bit. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Briefly what that's talking about. Paul is saying that Jesus is resurrected from the dead and he's the, he's the first one out of the tomb with there will be more to follow behind him. Okay? There will be more to follow behind him. Uh, Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, which is not Paul's way of saying he's afraid to talk about death, but rather it is that death has been mocked. And the worst death can say is, well, you're going to sleep for a little while. That's really the worst thing that death can threaten us with. Resurrection has always been part of the Christian story. It's always been part of the story because it is the answer to death. The death that began in the garden. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, ate the forbidden fruit and death entered into the world. And this problem of death is a problem that consumes our race, the human race. We are either constantly thinking about death or constantly trying not to think about it. And perhaps the most glorious word Christianity has to offer, the world, 
is that God has done something about it. Namely, He has written resurrection into His story. And indeed, it's always been part of His story. Now briefly, it just, just so we are clear, what resurrection means. It is different from simply life after death or living in heaven, going to heaven when you die. That's not resurrection. That's a heavenly afterlife in a spiritual realm. And we believe that for those who are in Christ and know Christ, then to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So it is true that when Christians say when we die, because of our faith in Christ, we are going to heaven. That's right. But that's not resurrection. Resurrection is embodied life after death. You still have your skin on, or rather, you've got, you've got new <laughs> skin to put on. Many think that the Bible doesn't have much to say about resurrection until we get to Jesus, but that's actually not right at all. I'm going to begin by going to Genesis chapter 22. A familiar story to many of you, it is the account of Abraham almost sacrificing his son Isaac, then God himself provides a sacrifice in the form of a ram. So after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. This command is given from God. Now, why that is such a weird command, but the aspect of human sacrifice, setting that aside for a moment, the other reason why it's weird is that God had promised, made promises to Abraham that were going to come through Isaac's bloodline. So what does the text say about Abraham that comes next? Abraham uh, obeys God, takes his son, goes up on the mountain, and Isaac says to his father, my father, here I am, my son. You notice the parallel language. He said, behold, look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Now, it does sound there like Abraham is assuming that God's going to provide an animal. That is the reassurance anyway that he gives to his son. But what the book of Hebrews tells us is that Abraham was at least also assuming that if the story ended in the death of Isaac, God must have plans to resurrect him. The only way that Abraham could have believed that this instruction came from God to kill his firstborn son, the one in whom God had promised that his line would run, that the blessing would come, everything that Abraham had banked all his hope on, is if he believed that God had the ability to raise Isaac from the dead. Because the promise about Isaac was a promise about Isaac's descendants. And I'd ask you to follow me closely here, everybody paying attention. If Isaac is dead, there are no descendants. It was a blood promise. There was always some notion of things in Abraham's mind. In fact, oh, you've already got it up there. By faith, this is from the book of Hebrews. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. You, you hear the author of Hebrews walking you through the drama there. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, 
which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And so, from, from at least the days of Father Abraham, resurrection has been part of God's story. Abraham was assuming that if this is how it's going to go, then God will raise him from the dead. Or how about the text we started with? Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Notice, notice what he's saying. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, after I've got no body left, I will see God in my body. Well, how are you going to manage that, Job? Job says, after my body's been destroyed, after my flesh is rotted in the grave, yet I will see God. He doesn't say, I'm going to go to heaven when I get there, and in my spirit form, I will see God. No, he says, in my flesh I will see God, which means he has a sense that his body's going to come back to life. I myself will see him with my own eyes. He says then in the next bit, right? Um, yeah, I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, right? So I, I'm going to look on my Redeemer with my eyeballs. Now, it is possible, I think even likely, that Job was written before Genesis. Not that Job happened before Genesis, that would be impossible. But Job was probably written before Genesis was. So we're talking some pretty early stuff. So how is it that Job already knows about a Redeemer that's going to give him resurrection? All I can tell you is that the united answer of commentators is, good question. <laughs> I mean, they're just absolutely befuddled over this text. And... So am I, but it's, this is a glorious promise that, is, that, is, that has its eyes on resurrection and on the redemption that's going to come in Christ. Job expects a resurrection. Why? Well, because resurrection has always been part of God's story. We're going to go now to Ezekiel chapter 37, a passage that is probably familiar to a lot of you. Ezekiel is standing in the middle of a valley. The hand of the Lord was upon me, he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface, and behold, they were very dry. <clears throat> so there are bones, and if you didn't get that they were dead, they're also dry, <laughs> right? There is no life here. That's the point. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I love his answer. Like, oh, oh Lord, you, it's like Ezekiel knows enough by now to not presume to know the answer to God's questions. Uh, so he just says, Lord, you know, I, I'm, I'm not certain what you're doing. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So preach to dead bones. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you, cover you with skin, put breath in you, and you shall live. Do you hear how almost like, a, almost like a hammer on an anvil, it's hammering again and again and again that what we're talking about is physical flesh and physical, I mean, and, and, and yeah, physical breath, so to speak. All right? So, I mean, you've got, you've got a sort of like anatomy, biology words going on here to make it extra clear so that you will know that I am the Lord. All right? And so... In the vision that Ezekiel has, the bones are not alive. Not only are they not alive, they're dry. And then the bones are connected. Flesh covers them. But they're still not alive until the Spirit of God comes 
and raises them up. Let's keep going. A sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together. And I looked, and behold, sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them. Skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to the breath, thus says the Lord Yahweh, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. The breath came into them. They lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So the Spirit of God comes, raises them up until they all stand as a mighty army. Now just so you know, it's, it's worth noting that, that a number of scholars want to say at this point that this text is about the restoration of Israel as a nation. So the, the, the nation is spiritually dead, the dry bones, languishing in exile. God's going to bring them back to life and back to their land. And that's true enough. But what sort of imagery does God give to his people? He gives them resurrection imagery. Not just coming back to to life in a spiritual sense, but getting all your flesh back. All I'm trying to say so far is that resurrection was part of Israel's theology, part of their hope, part of their expectation. It certainly was part of what we might call their theological imagination. It was always part of their story. And then when we get to the New Testament, what do we see? We see Jesus start raising people from the dead, right? like the widow's son in Luke chapter 7, or probably the most famous one next to Jesus himself is the account of Lazarus in John 11. In the Gospels, we learn a couple of things about the theological doctrine of resurrection in Jesus' day. The first thing we learn is that most Jews believe in a resurrection day, also called the day of the Lord, when all the dead would rise at the end of the world, at the end of the ages, and be judged by God. Okay? The second thing we learn in the Gospels is that there's a group of guys in Jesus' day called the Sadducees, and they rejected the idea of resurrection entirely. As uh, one has observed, I believe it's from the yeah, Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, the Sadducees repudiated the notions of resurrection and rewards and punishments after death. According to Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, they even denied the immortality of the soul. So basically, you died and that was it, right? Just, that was it. We were done for. In fact, there's this moment in Mark chapter 12, if we can go there now, where the Sadducees come to challenge Jesus about this very thing. It's one of my favorite stories in all of the New Testament, and all the Gospels. So the Sadducees came to him, and, and, and Mark gives you the, the, uh, the, um, the footnotes so you know what's going on. The Sadducees come to him who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow, raise up offspring for his brother. Okay, so then they tell him a story. There were seven brothers. First took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. Second took her, likewise died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman, you almost want to put in there, finally also died. (laughs) Right? Now, if that sounds absurd, it's meant to. Right? The goal of the Sadducees here is is not to inquire earnestly about a legal matter. They're trying to mock the idea of resurrection. Here's what what they're saying. In the resurrection, you can in the resurrection, Jesus, right? We don't buy that. When they rise again, that's going to be really awkward. That's what what they're trying to do. They're trying to make a joke of resurrection to say, so when they get up out of their graves, that's going to be really uncomfortable. Whose wife is she going to be? Hmm? 
Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Which is a great way to start a question, right? (laughs) Is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, there's Jesus' take on the matter. There's There's His theological position. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, Moses at the burning bush, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, the reason why that matters is because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, during the moment at the burning bush, all had one thing in common, namely, they were dead. Okay? And God didn't say, I used to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, cor- the correlated, therefore, those three must still be alive, right? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, Jesus says they're wrong. In passing, I just want to note, Jesus' entire argument hangs on a verb tense, which is really kind of wild to think about. So like, that's, that's how committed Jesus is to the Scriptures. That's how committed we are to the Scriptures, no, no, no less so than Jesus, whose entire argument there hangs on a verb tense in a sentence. So Jesus affirms the resurrection because he understands it's always been part of the story. So what about resurrection day? I mentioned that earlier. In John chapter 11, Lazarus dies. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. He was also the brother of Mary and Martha. Jesus comes to Bethany where they lived. And by this time, Lazarus had been dead for four days. And Jesus says to Martha in John 11... Right? He found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. That's the resurrection day doctrine. Okay? She's saying, I, oh, I, I know, Jesus, I know what you're talking about, right? I know that uh, eventually a day is going to come where he and me and Mary and the rest of us are going to rise again and we'll see him then. Jesus said to her, it's on the banners, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ. In other words, Martha tells him, you know, yes, I I know you're talking about resurrection day. And in, in response, he says, I am the resurrection. What's going on there? Jesus is putting himself in the center of her theology of resurrection. It's not just that there's a resurrection on the last day, but it is that there is no resurrection apart from Jesus on the last day. It is not just that he is capable of doing the miraculous work of raising Lazarus from the dead. Rather, Jesus is the one who makes the whole concept of resurrection possible in the first place. And that is finally demonstrated in his own spectacular resurrection. And yet, and yet, Jesus' resurrection is unique. The other resurrections are resurrections, true enough, the ones that happen in the Uh, in in, in the Bible, but they are not the model. They're not the archetype. What is 
really interesting about Jesus' resurrection. He gets out of the grave with His body, but it's also a changed body. We know that it is His body because He's still bearing the marks. The wounds are still there. That's one of the main points of John 20. We go there next, please. So eight days later, his disciples were inside. Thomas was with them. You remember Thomas after he'd expressed his doubts. Although the doors were locked, John's very explicit about this, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Shalom, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. Notice that apparently, apparently, Jesus' resurrected body can pass through walls and locked doors. I note in passing, that's really cool. But notice the emphasis that John puts on the wounds. Jesus says, here they are. Go ahead and touch them. Why were his wounds preserved? His pierced hands, his, the, uh, the, the wound in his side from the spear. So that the disciples and we the readers would know for certain this is the same man. This is the same guy that he was before the crucifixion. And that's what causes Thomas to worship, my Lord and my God. What we are promised in the New Testament is that we will be given a resurrection body that won't, indeed that can't, die. Won't, indeed it can't, wear out. That is why, by the way, Lazarus, for example, was not the prototype. Jesus is the prototype. Lazarus was raised from the dead, and then someday he died again. In fact, today, if you travel to Israel and go to the town of Bethany, there is a sign that apparently greets you and and reads, Welcome to Bethany, home of Lazarus, twice dead, friend of Jesus. (laughs) Lazarus walked out of the grave. A day did come later when he was carried back into it. What an odd funeral that must have been, right? I mean, I don't don't you get the sense they were just kind of waiting, probably waiting about four days just to make sure. But he walked out of the grave. Some years later, he was carried back in. And one day he will walk out a second time to walk and to run forever. This is our ultimate hope. Not just to exist in heaven as, as spirit beings, but to climb out of our graves with restored resurrection bodies that will breathe and sing and eat and drink and run forever. So in that sense, it's okay to say that, that heaven is our, our hope and that we're looking forward to heaven, but heaven, heaven is an, an inter, intermediate state. It's a, it's a stopping point until Jesus returns, and then we will return with Him. Paul even says his ultimate hope is not heaven. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-5, through 5, Paul says, We know that if the tent that is our earthly home, our earthly body is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed and just be a spirit floating around, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. It matters greatly that we understand 
that the resurrection has always been part of God's story. You see, Paul's hope is not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, to be given a, an unkillable resurrection body, a body like Christ's glorious body, a body that will live and work and eat and breathe and sing in a renewed earth and in the very presence of God. Sometimes we talk like heaven is our final destination, but heaven is our waiting room, y'all. We who die and go to heaven will be with Christ until it is time for His return. At which point the Scriptures say those in heaven will join Him in His return, in His descent, if you like, and the dead will rise. And we will live in a renewed, restored creation. Now why does this matter? Well, one thing it tells us, and this is worth its own sermon that we don't have time for this morning, but at the very least, it says apparently God cares a lot about our bodies and about our flesh. That, that, that our, our flesh is not just like a, a meat sack to carry around our souls. That's not how Christians think. That's never been Christianity. Our bodies matter. The fact that our Lord Jesus took on a body should forever convince us that Jesus cares about bodies. Death is not, by the way, death is not the end of existence. I, intuitively we know that, but I think sometimes we, we speak as though death is the end of existence. Death, that is not the definition of death. Defin, uh, the definition of death is the splitting of body and soul. That's what death is. But it's not the end of existence. You keep on existing after death. And so that's why I would, I mean, at, uh, at funerals and at memorial services, don't say, I mean, if, if you see, if, if you're like at a visitation or a wake and the, the body's there in the casket, don't say, oh, that's not really him. That's not really her, right? She's, she's no longer with, I mean, no, her, her, his or her spirit is in heaven. That's true. But that is still them. That's still him. That's still her. That body in the casket is the body that Jesus bled and died for. It is the body that one day He's going to resurrect. Now, if by then decomposition is such that there's not much left in the casket, then Jesus is going to reconstitute the atoms. I'm trusting Him with that and not worried about it. But that's the body that Jesus is going to resurrect and transform on the last day. This is why Christians care about what we do with our bodies how we conduct ourselves, present ourselves, close ourselves. It's why, it's why the Scriptures forbid fornication or adultery, because what we do with our bodies really matters. It's why God forbids murder, because how we treat other people's bodies really matters. So God created man and woman with distinction because our bodies matter. It's part of why we gather for worship regularly, because you're not just a floating spirit. You're an embodied soul. And God calls you to worship Him alongside other embodied souls. It's why Jesus communicates His grace to you by putting water on your body in baptism. By putting bread and wine into your body at the Lord's table. And the same body that was washed with clean water, fed with bread, refreshed with wine, is the body that He's going to raise up on the last day. Restored, and ready to live forever. But the fact that Jesus Christ made sure to promise the defeat of death itself is one of the greatest hopes we have as Christians. We're told in the Scriptures that the last enemy to be defeated is death. You go there, please. The last enemy to be defeated is death. That's what Paul says. Jesus Christ 
over the long arc of history, is putting all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to die will be death itself. We will one day watch Jesus, as it were, put death under his feet with our brand new resurrected body eyeballs. Because resurrection has always been part of his story. This is why Christians must be a perpetually hopeful people. Resurrection makes us hopeful. Easter makes us hopeful. That's why we don't give up on prodigals. Because resurrection has always been part of the story. Life coming out of death has always been part of the story. This is why we raise children in the midst of a twisted generation, in the midst of a dark time. Because resurrection has always been part of the story. This is why we build and fight while others tear down and retreat. Because resurrection has always been part of the story. This is why the call goes out to all who will hear that Jesus Christ, our resurrected King, calls all to Himself to repent of their sin, to turn from their sin and hate it. And it doesn't matter what evil is in your past or even your present if you will repent. If you will say, I hate my sin. Lord Jesus, I confess and believe that you are the Son of God and my Savior. He will begin the work of remaking you after his image because resurrection has always been part of his story. Our Redeemer lives and he brings life to all who seek him. One day he will return to remake this world so that all the grief, all the grief that we find so ordinary, Right? All the grieving that we're doing for Mr. Frank. All the grieving that we're doing for others that we've lost. All the grieving that we do that feels so ordinary and normal and is an ordinary normal part of this life will be but a distant and forgotten memory. Can you imagine it? Today we say things like, death is natural. Death is inescapable. Grief is normal, and so it is. Everybody has to grieve, and, and so they do. One day, death will be an old wives' tale that we, oh, just barely remember. Grief will be a weird legend that we talk about. You remember when we used to grieve? Ugh. We'll laugh about it. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And that means that death is on the run. And we will one day raise our glasses in the new Jerusalem to toast the victory of our God over death forever. Jesus Christ is risen, risen indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Indeed, our Father, we ask that you would bless these words this morning. And cause our hearts to rejoice again in the good news of the resurrection. We lift up our thanks and ask that you would bless us and indeed raise up our hearts and be served by you this morning, body and blood, with bread and wine. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.